You're listening to The Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone, everywhere. Hi, lexiconosaurs and word chefs. Welcome to episode 81 of The Melting Podcast. Who are you? You go first. I go first. You, August 1st. That's me. I'm your head chef, August 1st, AF. That's me. It's my name. You all know it now. It wasn't really a secret. And what's your title? Head chef. I just said it. Put it all together. I'm your head chef, AF Grappin. Well done. Gomi, who are you? The grill mistress, Erin Kasmark. That's how I know it's well done. Right. It's, it's ruined. You're so skilled. Yes, and well done is ruined. There, I said it. I agree, honestly. <laughs> That's not meat after that. You're just eating charcoal. <laughs> it's a chemical sponge. If you're so poisoned, you. if you're poisoned, it's it's gonna help. You're a chemical sponge. <laughs> sure. Anyway. Anyway. <clears throat> you know where we put chemical sponges? In the dishwasher? On the chef's table. That's what this episode is. That's like the worst segue ever, but I'm going with it. Welcome to the chef's table episode. Eight. The only one ever. The only one. No. <laughs> it's another chef's table. The chef's table is where we have recorded panels from conventions, generally nerdy ones. And so far, they've only been Balticon, but we're hoping to start... Start branching out. A little bit. Um, but so this is our last panel from Balticon 2018. Mm-hmm. This is You Can't Shop at Target in Middle Earth, <laughs> which they're actually going to be doing again at Balticon 2019, so I'm actually really curious to play that one on our first Balticon 2019 chef's table and see and how the compare. two of them compare. Yes, I'd like that. Mm-hmm. Because we've we've done repeated panels year after year. We've both yeah. been on, like, the writing for audio, the why your story... Needs w- a narrator. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they're always different, even though the whole subject matter is the same. It's just... I'm hoping to do improving your readings again. Yeah. Though, who knows? Maybe this time I won't moderate. Maybe I'll just be on it. Maybe. We'll see what happens. But anyway, you can't shop at Target in Middle Earth. Bon appetit. Well, we're going we're gonna to wait a couple of minutes for our last panelist. Uh, like many of us, she probably had back-to-back panels. Uh, but uh, this, is, this, this panel... This panel is about world building and white room, and how to av- how to do one and avoid the other. Uh, they, uh, there she is. There she is. Yes, even in the men's room it was. Uh, so yeah. Between panel rush. Because I have managed to lose my tent card. My name is Walt Boys, and I'm your humble moderator. And why don't we start on this end and introduce yourselves, and we'll go from there. Okay, uh, I'm Melissa Scott. I uh, write science fiction and fantasy, and I've been doing so... Well, my first novel was published in 1984, so I've been doing this a while. Um, I write... uh, well, as I said, I write science fiction and fantasy, the most recent novel out. It will be, in fact, uh, launched here at Balticon in exactly two hours at 3 o'clock in the Club Lounge, Point of Size, the fifth in the Points Fantasy Mystery Series. Um, 
I'm also, aha, someone has a copy, which I don't, I don't even have mine yet. <laughs> but um, I'm a historian by training and an obsessive world builder by avocation. My name is Denise Clemens. My tent card is on its way down from the eighth floor. Um, I am a science fiction and fantasy poet and have had many poems published. I'm also a food editor for a local newspaper where I've written a column for about 15 years. And I'm a food historian and have taught a number of workshops on feeding your imaginary world. So my approach to world building comes from we have to eat. I'm Rosemary Claire Smith, and I started out as an archaeologist, which is where a lot of my world building comes from. When I um, started to, to write, I primarily write about dinosaurs. I have a series of dinosaur stories in Analog. This is the issue that has um, Diamond Jim and the Dinosaurs, which was an AnLab Readers Award finalist. And I also most recently have published an interactive fiction game called T-Rex Time Machine. Oh, and the, one of the choice of games? Those choice of games, yes. Oh, they're awesome. Those are great. Uh, and hello, I'm Ada Palmer. Uh, I'm also a historian. I teach at the University of Chicago. Uh, and I'm also a, a novelist. And my first novel, too, like The Lightning, won the Compton Crook last year, which is why I'm back here. Congratulations. So I also world build a lot, and I also spend a lot of time thinking about historical questions and how things get from place to other place. And like I said, I'm Walt Boyce. I'm the editor of the Grantville Gazette, which is the magazine of Eric Flint's 1632 universe. And I'm also co-editor with my wife, Joy Ward, there in the black hat, um, uh, the uh, of Eric Flint's Ring of Fire Press, um, because... Uh, Bain can't publish enough to, to publish all of the stuff that 1632 authors write. And so we've, we've, we've taken to publishing the overflow ourselves. Uh, we also, we, we also take uh, authors who have been published, whose books are out of print and they want to get them back in print, and um, authors who have a new, a new book that they want to, want to publish. So that's Ring of Fire Press. Um, when I had a real job, um, my, uh, I was uh, uh, a consultant and an editor in manufacturing and automation. Um, so I, I know a little bit about the, the great underbelly of how to do things. Uh, and this is about world building. Um, you, uh, I suppose I probably ought to look at the actual description. It says, in your original fantasy setting, everything the characters own has to come from somewhere. You can't just do hand wavium uh, and it shows up. Um, that's bad writing, folks. You can't do that. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what you need to do to build a believable world. Uh, and from my point of view, um, um, I, I have a, as an editor, I have a real problem with what we call white room syndrome. Um, and those of you who've been edited by me know this. Um, what it's about is you have to establish a sense of place. And what better way to establish a sense of place 
than to talk about um, the, if you're in a stable, you talk about the sights and sounds and smells of the stable. Um, you also have to figure out uh, where the stable came from and so forth ad infinitum. Who wants to take, who wants to take a first shot at how to, what's the number one principle of world building? Anybody? What do you do first? Well, it'll, you know, actually the first piece of world building for me is what's the story? Mm -hmm. Because the world building ultimately is in service to the story. But once you've, once you have that, once you know what effect you're aiming for, then because this is my background, this is the, this is the toolkit that I have, you know, I rifle through my mental files of historical, historic periods, see if there's one that fits well, that fits badly, that can be stitched with another. If what, what effects am I trying to achieve and what, what bits of material culture best support that? Um, mm -hmm. food, is a, food is one of my personal favorites, figuring out what, what people would eat and why, what's available, it's also really good for getting you out of your head if you love it. I do not particularly like, for example, fish and cooking fish I don't do. I grew up inland. But I had to learn a great deal about it when I wrote um, People Who Live on Islands. I mean, to follow on to your comments, you, you need to have some notion of the story arc, you need to have some notion of the characters, and you need to have some notion of the time. Is it in the past? Is it in the future? Is it in a near future or present? And then you need to look at both the technology and the infrastructure to see what would make sense. And one of the things about writing in the near future is that a lot of what we have today would still be there. Mm -hmm. um, change is slower than you think. Um, so that's one of the things that you would want to look at. And very strongly across economic boundaries, too. Yes. Yes. Um, to, to build on, on that in terms of the sense of the time, the place, the food, all those things... One thing you need to focus on is the level of civilization, the level of, of technology. Are these people who can just nano uh, produce all sorts of things with their, with their various 3D printers, or are these people who are chipping stone tools? You need some sort of sense of scarcity, I think, as well. What is it that they want that they don't have that's mm -hmm. rare, that's valuable? <clears throat> Where does it come from? Do they have it, and does everybody else around them want it? Or are they the ones who are going to go exploring to find it? Uh, those are the kinds of world-building questions that I come to it as an archaeologist, because one of the things we see consistently in the archaeological record is the important stuff got around, whether it was traders, whether it was being handed from village to village, what, whatever it was, and I don't mean just just gold, but um, spices are, are a good example of something that enhanced the quality of life. Sure, you could live without them, but it would add so much to your, your society just to have, when you're talking about food, talk about some of those little interesting extras. 
I also think an important element of all of this is to think of working out these details not as a duty of world building, but as a tool that then actually facilitates the story developing more as well. Because often when you ask and then answer a question about some detail like this, it makes your world expand. So let's imagine we're in a medievaloid tech setting and we have a character and the character has a cloak and the cloak is red. What red dye is it? Is it cochineal? Cochineal comes from tropical places. If it's tropical cochineal, now we have to have some kind of trade route which is allowing that to come. And suddenly you're thinking about, okay, so there has to be a tropical location. What is the trade history? Are they allies or are they enemies? How is the red dye fixed to the fabric that the cloak is made of? They need a dye fixer like alum. Alum is mined. Okay, where is the alum mined? Does this civilization have the alum mine? Or does the enemy civilization have an alum mine? Or is there a little independent city-state in between that your empire and another empire fight to be allies with? And suddenly new places and new histories of conflict, of war, of expansion, of failed expansion come into being because these materials are necessary for the cloak. So it's not a duty of filling out your world. It's a tool that makes you realize, oh, it would be really cool if there was this little city-state that is the only source of alum that has been totally playing it between these two empires that both desperately need alum. And suddenly you can come up with a really interesting Dougal family that rules the city-state. And, and your world fills in as you try to answer the details about where the materials come from. And where are the spinners and weavers? I, yes, I, I would even go back before we get to the dye to what is the fabric? Is it wool from what? From goats? From sheep? Are, are there um, shepherds? Are they um, up in the mountains where the, 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 the sheep are? Or is it cotton? Are they growing cotton somewhere? Does it come from silk? Um, one of the things that, that drives me nuts about some of these fantasy stories, ones where they're poorly done, is the clothing is so dispensable. Someone rips a shirt and throw it away. <laughs> If you're in a medieval society or, or anything pre-industrial, no, no, no. I mean, making those things, the mm -hmm. gathering the, the whatever the fibers are, uh, spinning them, weaving them, sewing them. If you want a good um, example of how it's done right, the book um, Hild by Nicola Griffith, um, you really see all the intensive... Um, operation just to fashion clothing. And um, as Ada was saying, some, some of the dyes and then the area is, is being known for certain rich dyes that they imbue into their fabrics. Well, and, I, and I think you're absolutely right that each of those details as you explore them, it's a new possibility for conflict, it's a new possibility for storytelling. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're right, that's, that's how... It's not just the, the nerdiness that so many of us like. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing, too, is um, what, is, what do these people have on their feet? Um, is it um, leather? Is it rags? I mean, think about this. What is the level of sophistication and technological advancement? And if you have animals, are they sentient? Do you need their permission to harvest from them. I mean, that's another aspect that illuminates your world. If you 
think about these things and you start thinking about this as you're writing. When you are writing a scene and your character walks into the scene, what is your character walking into? Uh, what does it look like? Um, what is your character wearing? Where did your character get it? Um, if your character is carrying a sword, uh, where did the sword come from? How much did he pay for it or her? How much did she pay for it? If you're, uh, and, and, and as you, as you look at this, start thinking about what the scene looks like as you paint it. Because we as writers see these scenes in our heads. And sometimes, um, we think you do too. And sometimes you don't. So even though you think that they ought to see this, for God's sake, it's a medieval castle, you should know it. No, there's about 4,500 different kinds of medieval castles. Um, what you need to be able to do is describe it in, in ways that makes it meaningful. Now, I don't mean that you should be wordy. Um, Roger Zelazny uh, is a past master at describing um, scenes all the way down to what it smells like in a very short, very few number of words. So is Cecilia Holland. How many of you have read Cecilia Holland? Uh, oh, you all have a treat, those of you who haven't. Go immediately and buy Cecilia Holland. She is the greatest living historical novelist, and for the last 15 years or so, she's been writing YA fantasy um, with, a, uh, with, with a bent toward the Norse. Uh, and um, you, should, you should... I teach how to write out of Cecilia Holland as much as I do out of anybody else. The best example... Uh, is her book, Great Maria. Um, it goes for page after page after page, only describing things by the use of dialogue. And you see exactly what's going on, where they are, what they're doing, uh, what uh, 12th century Sicily looks and feels like. So when you are writing, you have to keep in mind that we as readers don't have a clue and the only clues we get are the clues that you give us. Although I think, I want to push back just a little bit on that, that because as you say, you need not to be wordy. As someone who likes the details of description and who has discovered that over a 30-year career, there's less and less tolerance for long descriptions, mm -hmm. you actually need to rely on some familiarity a lot of the time, and a lot of the time you can use people's preconceptions to do some of your work for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a useful tool in the toolkit. It was a castle. You've already set, by saying castle, you set up a whole bunch of expectations in the reader's mind. Mm -hmm. um, stone, medieval, feudal society. You can overthrow them or you can, con or you can reinforce them, but that one word has done a lot of work for you right there. And I don't think there's any shame in relying on, on that when you need to spare, <coughs> you need to save room for the things that are really different in, in your novel. Um, Ellen Kushner once talked about 
the uh, conservation of weirdness as a useful concept. There's only so much really weird shit you can put in a book before your reader throws it across the room. And I feel that this is a valuable, <laughs> a valuable thing to keep in the back of your mind. And, and your weird shit has to be consistent. So there's a novel by Fran Wilde called Updraft, which is a bone structure is the basis of this society, and it's a, a tower. And one of the foods that she has are oat cakes. Well, I don't think so. You don't grow a lot of oats in a bony structure. She has apples. Um, and I once asked her about it, and she said, oh, well, they're a really uh, unfamiliar breed of apple that only grow in very high altitudes. Well, it wasn't in the book. So as a reader, I kind of stumbled over that and said, well, this doesn't make sense. So weird is good, and the, and the world she created was really clever, um, but there were some things that made me stop short. And I, I do think, too, in terms of, of, of where the things come from, for goodness sakes, be conscious of things like, like altitude, things that are growing um, high in an alpine environment versus things that may be growing down low in a, a, a tropical river river valley. I mean, you, you can't just throw them together. One of the other things that drives me nuts in fantasy is you have a complete world, and everybody speaks not only the same language, but the same dialect of the same language. At least invest a little bit in figuring out um, what different cultures might live on this world and how they... Uh, uh, how they react and how they speak and what languages they speak. Look at our look at our world. We have what 175 languages, something like that, uh, um, or more. Uh, and some and some languages have a hundred dialects, uh, even with even with television. Uh, well, or to think through, if everybody on this world speaks one language and there's only one dialect. There, are, there needs to be a reason for that. What makes mm -hmm. languages homogenize is when there's very, very fast and constant communication among all the members of the community, they continue speaking the same language. So what could make that happen? Well, let's say there are gods and the gods are real and the gods show up all the time and the gods speak a language and everybody speaks that language because that language <laughs> is gone everywhere all over the place. That would do it. Or let's say that this is a society that at Stone Age developed a cell phone like you can talk to anyone anywhere instantly tech and has always had it. So then you don't get the subdelineation of different languages from people not talking to each other if it's a society that's in that kind of constant communication. That would be really cool. So again, when you sometimes you'll have a world building idea and people will say, you know, that doesn't actually make any sense. It doesn't make sense for everyone on your planet to be speaking the same language. So then you can't, okay, what would make them be speaking the same language? Now I have a really cool ingredient for my world, and now we can imagine what a civilization is like that has developed all over a planet and yet been in constant cell phone-like communication, even when actually getting there required walking because they didn't have horses yet. That would be really cool, being able to communicate what you can't trade. How does your society then function? What, what begins as a bad world-building ingredient if you decide, actually, I want to come up with a way to keep that? instead becomes the backbone of a really original world build because you've thought through the secondary consequences of what's necessary to make it happen. Yeah. That brings up, thank you for shilling, um, that brings <laughs> up the, the question of transportation. If, you're, um, if you are a 
quasi-medieval slash early modern-ish uh, <laughs> civilization template, um, how do people get from place to place? Do what kind of... I'm assuming they all don't ride zebras. Um, zebras are really hard to train. Um, uh, um, what do you do with horses? Do you know how far you can ride a horse in a day without killing the horse? Uh, the, the, uh, the romance novels where the hero rides 50 miles in one day to save the heroine, um, he kills three horses while he's doing it. Uh, because a horse can't go 50 miles in a day. You need, to, you need to really look at that. You need to look at transportation. If there's a ship involved, you need to know a little bit about how the ship sails, where the ship, what the problems the ship can get into, what will cause the ship to sink, uh, other than somebody putting a very large hole in the bottom of it. Um, well, that's one of the fundamentals. Yes, yeah, basically. Um, so, what about transportation? Uh, I'll, I'll take a crack at that. I, I think that not enough emphasis has been given in a lot of fantasy I read to river transportation. And as an archaeologist, mm-hmm. what, what I see in, in the record is that people went places by following, following the rivers and all, all sorts of different boats. Coastal, um, along coast and in, in ships as... As, as well, but rivers can, can sometimes be better in, in the sense that you don't have to contend with a proverbial storm at sea, though you might have to contend with waterfalls and rapids. Um, you look at where a lot of early uh, cities first sprung up, and it was the confluence of rivers, and there is a, a, a good reason for, for that. You can have people coming from here and there and whatever, and, and maybe that a river city is a, a natural choke point. The people there can be charging uh, a percentage of whatever goods are going up and down the river and, and get wealthy from that. And, and also, if you can work out the technology so you can transport your, your stuff by a boat, you can transport a whole heck of a lot more of it than you can on, on a horse or an ox cart or something like that. She, she said sitting on the branch of the Patapsco in a major harbor. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. Um, you, uh, one of the people who I think has done a really good job of doing that is Lois McMaster Bujold yes. in the Sharing Knife series. Um, that's, that's a tremendous use of a riverine uh, culture. Yeah, I worked for many years for uh, a, a group of historic house museums uh, established, and our our region was the Piscataqua region. They're all on the Piscataqua or its tributaries, and it's one of the earliest settlement areas in New England, precisely because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a tidal river, and it's tidal quite far up, which also contributes to how easy it is to transport goods by water. Um, one of the houses that I worked at, um, the front door faces the river not the actual roads, because yeah. this is how you got there. And every so often we'd have somebody arrive by kayak and they actually saw the house the way it was supposed to be. The other thing worth pointing, <coughs> worth doing with transportation is to limit your setting, to set your, to set your story in the city that's at the confluence. And then you have 
distances measured by how much, how far you could walk in an hour or two. And that that's perfectly legitimate and perfectly compelling, or can be. But that's another way of dealing with scale. A, an entire fantasy world doesn't have to be the world. A city can be quite sufficient. Yeah, that's true. And then in terms of the river traffic, most of the Delmarva Peninsula was just laced with intercoastal, all sorts of waterways. And at every single confluence, that's where the mills were. That's where the towns started. Um, and that's where you develop the sense of scarcity or plenty, which you can use to drive conflict in your stories. Um, how far do you have to go? What resources are going to have to come from that river source, down that river, up that river, to get there to your location? Yeah, so that the especially if you have multiple different political units that have different optimization of terrain, right? You can have the empire that or the or the city state, you know, it could be tiny or it can be enormous, that has great river structures and therefore has prosperous trade, and then you can have a different one that doesn't have that. Why is war gonna happen? Because that one's gonna constantly be trying to get access to the rivers. And you have, as in real history, uh, a very strong motive, and it's not that somebody is an evil dictator who wants to go aha. It's that this civilization cannot grow unless it takes a river port, uh, and so you 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 work the the historic causes of the roots of your conflict between things will arise out of terrain, or similarly, so will uh, uh, things like the utility of particular magic. So, for example, going back to the um, how long a horse can go in a day, which is very important. So in, the, in, the, in Wales, in the period of the Middle Ages when England is trying to hold Wales, it's vital for there to be a castle exactly one how long you can ride a horse in a day distance from point to point so that you can travel through a hostile area and have a castle to stay in every night and be safe as you're going along. So it's peppered with castles that are exactly one horse day journey unit apart, <laughs> which is different depending on how hilly it is. And so in the really, really hilly areas, there's a castle like on every single hilltop right next to each other because it takes a horse that long. And in the flat low countries, they're really far apart. Well, now what if you can fly? Suddenly, being able to fly is much more significant in the really hilly areas where there are 100 castles. And you can get from castle to castle in an hour by, by flight, but much more slowly by horse than it is in the plains where horse and flight might be the same distance. Suddenly the utility of even your magic is different based on these two different spaces. And so you can think, okay, if my thing is that my character has a, the only flying horse, this is the region <laughs> where it matters, this is the region where it doesn't. It would be really cool to have the person grow up in the area where the castles are close together and then get sent on a mission in the other one where suddenly the flying horse isn't actually better than a normal horse and be dismayed and have to come up with new ways to be excellent because the flying horse alone doesn't do it. So again, it makes plot, it makes characterization when you answer the questions of basic fundamentals. And also the geography will determine the characteristics of the horse in terms of its size and its mm -hmm. stamina and what it needs to eat. And don't forget that um, prior to the invention of the modern horse collar, almost all hauling, plowing, everything else wasn't done by horses. It was done by oxen. There's a really good study for people who are interested in it. Um, done in the late 80s, early 90s. I, the title is something like uh, The Logistics of the Macedonians of Alexander the Great, where he's gone back to uh, British Army vet manuals 
from the 19th century and use that to work back to what you would actually need to have in the supply train. And it's a really eye-opening um, read if you're, if you're interested in that kind of large-scale military logistics. And again, it makes a difference. You know, how much there's a, the the fixed limit is when you have to carry more. When the load equals the amount of food the animal is going to eat, right. then after that you're, <laughs> you might as well not. You can't have shadow facts suddenly lead the writers of Rohan over the hill. <laughs> um, you the writers have to be able to feed and groom their horses. They they couldn't leave uh, uh, Mediceld and get uh, get to Helm's Deep in an hour, even though that's movie time. Um, well, that's the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, the, that, now that <laughs> now that goes that, that goes to something else. Transportation and terrain define food. What food is available? What can you eat? What can you grow? What what kind of pasture land do you have, and what kind of what kind of pastureable animals? Who was it that said they approached everything through food? Was that was yeah. that you? Yeah. Have at it. Uh, well, uh, one of the things is to look at scarcity versus plenty. I've used this example before. If you have eggs and they're sold by the dozen, that's an evidence of plenty, and everybody's got a chicken in their backyard. Caviar, on the other hand, it sells by the quarter of an ounce, and it's very, very costly. So you get an, a sense of the need for trade routes and the idea of what you can grow or raise yourself. Um, the geography defines, the topography defines what you can grow and what you can grow successfully. And if you set yourself up in, say, a post-apocalyptic era, where's the water to grow those plants? Um, and if you can't grow wheat and grazing grasses, you run out of ruminants. So that whole food supply goes away. So there's a whole set of decisions you have to make, choices you have to make about both the topography and the climate in order to determine what you can grow successfully. Let me follow up on, on that. This is putting on my hat as an archaeologist. Some years ago, I was working in the southwest in Arizona on what was called the Central Arizona Project, which mm -hmm. was the thesis, the um, task was the, the water was one place, the people were elsewhere, and so it was to construct canals to, to bring the water supply down to where the people are. As an archaeologist doing the surveys for all this, you know what we found? We found ancient irrigation canals. I bet it, you did. It was a geographic determination there. Again, you know, here's where the water is, here's the people, the land is such, this is where the water is going to go, this is, this is the land that's going to be good, that, that you, can, you can irrigate for crops. But one other thing about food, because I'm with you, I mean, I can I, I start by what people can eat. And you want to think about when are they eating it. Do they have great big granaries and so they can store their food for a, a long, long time? Or do they have to carry it all with them because they're nomadic? And, and then when you have the hero who is, is cast out somewhere and, well, no problem, because they just eat a few um, berries. Berries are always popular. Or some <laughs> kind of roots or something. Well, when are those in season? 
And some of them, it's a very short growing period. And yeah, this may be the country where they come from, but not in the dead of winter, but maybe not even in the fall or the spring. Maybe it's a two-week period. The, uh, we'll get to questions in just a minute. Yeah, staple and food supply can also, again, uh, affect or even determine politics. So let's think about mm -hmm. you're picking the staple crop for your two fantasy kingdoms, right? It could be rice. It could be wheat. It could be corn. It could be yucca. Um, these yield different calorie values per acre, right? Especially pre-genetic modification, rice is going to yield you a lot more per acre than wheat, for example. So then you have a more dense population because farmers are doing a lot of labor-intensive work in a smaller area instead of farther away. That means in the time of political tumult, your, your, your farmers can get to the urban spaces to take part in a riot much faster than if they were farming wheat or yucca. Well, let's imagine one of your kingdoms has one and the other has the other. This is why one of these kingdoms is perpetually unstable, because it farms rice, and the rice-growing farmers are constantly able to have political agency by being able to move quickly into the capital. And the other one where they're farming yucca, which means they have to be miles and miles away from the capital in order because they're farming enormous areas that are low labor per acre but low yield per acre, has a much more stable and powerful aristocracy that monopolizes the city and the rural peasants can't do anything. Again, you have from the food the plot or richness to add to the plot and give their uh, give a backbone to the cultural and political differences and histories of these two areas. So it's not just about the food-eating scene being vivid. It's about the food-eating scene being the backbone of further plot extrapolated from it. I would love to hear everybody recommend, because you, know, you just recommended a wonderful, the, the Napoleonic book. Do people have other nonfiction, you know, books of incredibly useful historical information or websites or things that you would recommend that people write down as good world-building source book? Well, I would things. recommend my book, The Culinary History of Southern Delaware. I mean, that is just <laughs> age track. Cool. <laughs> but there, there actually is a series of books published by the History Press, and it's called The American Palette. So they've got Florida, they've got Kentucky, and it's the culinary history of each region. Um, and the one in Florida goes all the way back to the Mastodons, which is, I find, not plausible, but anyway. But, um, but those are those kinds of things are really helpful, and also some of the American history books, um, first-hand accounts of some of the settlers in early North America, um, from the Pilgrims to some of the Jamestown settlers. We've published seventy-seven issues of the Grantville Gazette, and in every single one of them, there have been nonfiction articles about the way things could be done or would be done or were done in the early modern period. One of the best articles that the Gazette's ever published um, it was in the first Gazette volume. Um, it was about, it was a, a, a very good compact article about the use of horses in the late Middle Ages and the early modern period um, by Karen Bergstrahl. Um, I strongly recommend it. In fact, I posted it on Facebook the other day because it came up in another panel that, that we were on. Um, there's stuff in the Gazette back issues um, about airships uh, and why steampunk airships need wheels. Uh, because they're too heavy to fly. Um, <laughs> And, um, and how they work, and um, how radio would work in um, a period of low sunspot activity, 
I mean, stuff like that. Um, we've deliberately done that so that new authors into the 1632 universe don't have to do all their all of their primary sources research. So that's a good that, that's a good bunch of information for you. Um, there are there are lots of others that are out there. Uh, one of the things you can do is to read uh, read a book that that clearly makes sense to you about how all of these things are interconnected, and then do a little analysis, do a little editorial analysis on how the author did that. Do you have any? Um, well, the things that I read the background is maybe a little, this is, and now for something completely different, for um, the culture of the, the Americas um, right at the coming of the Europeans. The thing that I always found so interesting was reading the accounts of the Jesuits. Mm -hmm. They really went and lived with, with the um, various peoples and had to really get to know them quite well in order to, to convert them to Christianity. And some of them were awfully keen observers. And mm -hmm. Obviously, you, you have a, a certain cultural and, and, and religious point of view on it, but you can get a whole lot of really inf interesting information about the people that, that they were encountering firsthand. I'd like to add a couple. Go ahead. Um, Judith Tarr, um, yes. writer of fantasy, excellent yes. writer of fantasy in her own right, has a very, very good book on, on horses. She is a deeply opinionated horsewoman, and you should listen to her. <laughs> and she's usually right. And she, Yes, she's almost always right. Um, <laughs> the other... Tar, T-A-R-R. Um, the other thing that I would recommend is some of the uh, excavation reports coming out of Hadrian's Wall. Mm -hmm. um, yes. There's a yes. ton of amazing... A, a ditch full of shoes last year, two years ago now. Um, amazing stuff and amazing research being done on the minutiae of life. Um, Elizabeth Moon... Uh, does a really good job of world building, whether it's science fiction or, or in her fantasy. Um, it hangs together awfully well. I'm sorry, I, I jumped on um, Go ahead. There's a, there's a really great academic reference book with the unimaginative title, Before the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> it's a boring shade of gray with no cover art. Um, it's, a, it's a compendium of the of the data of the findings of 700 doctoral dissertations on medieval and early modern Europe. Somebody uh, had a lot of time on their hands. Just assembled <laughs> together. So that if you're wondering, you know, how many mills would there be in my region? It's not going to tell you that for the exact region you've picked, but it's going to tell you that for one particular county in a randomly selected in place in Spain where that was somebody's dissertation. But it's the only data we have to answer that question. And so it's, it's full of immensely useful data. How much of my population are literate? Well, here's how much of the population of Ghent was literate at a particular time. Uh -huh. Maybe you can use that. But it, for and the best description why. is, yeah, if we know it, here's a well-researched version of close to what you might be looking for, but all in one sort of compendium. Uh, so that's a really useful, it's not an encyclopedia, because it's mostly, we don't know the answer to these questions for most places on Earth, but we do for this random location. Thank you, PhD. Um, 
There's also an intimidatingly enormous 1,800-page book that I nonetheless recommend even just starting if you don't finish it by Michael McCormick called The Origins of the European Economy, which mm -hmm. is about how the Roman economy transitions into the medieval economy. But the truly epic thing about this book is the range of different sources that he uses to make the argument, which shows you the range of different kinds of questions and sources you should be looking for. Because in one paragraph, he'll be trying to say, you know, how quickly did uh, this place lose bronze? Well, to answer that question, I'm going to use this letter and I'm going to use the metallurgic analysis of this coin that was found in a tomb 9,000 miles away. And I'm going to use the DNA evidence of fossilized parasite eggs from the poo in a privy. <laughs> and I'm going to explain how these three data points are what we need to answer the question, how quickly did this town lose bronze? And you see how the different kinds of sources, some of them textual, some of them archaeological, some of them using newer technologies like imaging um, or statistics, uh, get woven together to make this transformation. As an editor, though, I have to warn you. The origins of the European economy. It's about, again, how to think about the question rather than using the specific data that it gives. Um, as an editor, though, I have to warn you that too much research is not your friend. <laughs> uh, and so you have to know when to shoot the researcher in the head and write your story. Um, if it's all right with the panel, I'd like to start taking questions from the audience. Yes? Everybody is assuming that when you're world building, they have seasons. But the majority of the stories I've read that don't take place on Earth fail to tell me why they have seasons. Yeah, it's bad world building. <laughs> if you, it, no, the reason we I'm have sure. seasons is because we were struck by what is now our moon and we're at an axis, we're tilted. Right. And unless your world has that same quality, you're not going to have seasons. I know. I, actually, I don't think the authors know. I think you're right. <laughs> I actually disagree rather profoundly. Unless it matters to the story that you don't have seasons, that is a thing that you can use to bring your reader into the world. Yes, this planet has seasons like Earth does, but it also, here's this other really bizarre set of physical and social features that are much more important to the story. Adding we have no seasons or we have really bizarre seasons is just the kind of thing, ask me how I know this, that will tip you over the boundary of the conservation of weirdness. It's I think, turtles I think all the way argue. down, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Has anybody read, else read the uh, Martha Wells' Rexura novels? Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful novels and wonderful world building that breaks a lot of the rules that we've said. I mean, it's got more different species of people than you could ever imagine and doesn't actually explain how everything works except you can eventually figure it all out because she's got it in her hip pocket. It's just not articulated in that way. I think it's some of the most lovely, unobtrusive world building I've read in a while. Yes? Uh, my friends and I operate a couple of small replica Viking vessels and I'm frequently called upon to lecture at schools and all. And part of the lecture is I'll point to my wearing my tunic under the armor and such like, but I'll point to my clothing and I'll show them a picture of the ship. And then I'll tell them, this is women's work. Every stitch that I'm wearing, every thread in that sail 
and the sail on our small ship is like 80 square feet, and the larger vessel is like uh, 1,600. Every thread would have been hand-spun, hand-woven, dyed, and it all started out as flax in the field or wool on a sheep's back. Think of the amount of work that went into that. And thank the women that you're here, because they did it all. You would have starved to death and shivered to death if it hadn't been for your support troops back home, which were basically your family, your tribe, your grandfather, and the kids working their butts off to put you out there so you could go beat up some Englishmen. And that's another point about clothing. Um, generally speaking, um, the middle class medieval person, a prosperous yeoman farmer, um, um, merchant, a townsman, would get one set of clothes a year. And you wore that set of clothes all year long until you wore it out. And then you got another set because it was extremely time-consuming and, ex and therefore extremely expensive to get a set of clothes. The conspicuous consumption of the nobility um, was actually, they actually had to regulate conspicuous consumption by sumptuary laws. Uh -huh. The thing that I love about sumptuary laws is that what they're actually telling you is not that, not that it's bad for middle class people to wear this, but that they're actually doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the fact that the same law gets passed about once a decade mm -hmm. suggests that this fails every single time, which is one of the things I dearly love about sumptuary laws. Oh, yeah. Well, and in particular, actually, in particular with clothing, clothing is, is a form of communication as well. This, you know, people are not, it's not just a question of is it wool or is it linen or is it silk that tells you things about trade routes, um, but it, it, it's... Characters are using them to communicate with each Look other, and therefore you can use it to communicate with the reader. And if we've had a, a situation where so far all the characters we've met have been consistently wearing wool and linen, except for you know the the mayor of the town, who is the only person who's wearing I don't know made up fabric or or silk, silk or whatever it is he wanted to be, or or let's change the ground. Let's say he's the only one with wool. Let's say everybody's in linen and only the mayor is in wool, which means we're in a situation where wool is scarce and coming from far away. And then we go to another village where everybody is wearing wool, and they have huge wool cloaks and wool, opulent wool everywhere. You don't have to say, this is a rich village. You just have to say that people are all wearing wool, and your reader gets it already, because you've taught your reader the communication tools of the society. And whether it's colors or whether it's the way things are being decorated, once you learn the communication pattern or you decide the communication pattern of what this stuff is communicating, then when you go to another space and you see that it's different, you can communicate differences in the society very effectively, including differences in the society that really shock people. So I'll give a real quick historical example and then hand it over to you. But um, So Renaissance Florence, which is my speciality, right? Renaissance Florence, famed throughout Europe, for how much sodomy there was, right? The, the verb for sodomy in five European languages was Florence turned into a verb. Right? <laughs> this is what this city is and everyone knows it. But female dress in Florence was really conservative. 
And so when the Duke of Milan at one point came to visit Florence and there were women who came with him and they had you know, busts down here, everyone in Florence was shocked and horrified <laughs> because, oh my God, I can see a square inch at the top of maybe where the cleavage is barely starting to begin on this woman. And everyone was really horrified. And the Duke of Milan was like, you're the most sinful, sodomistic civilization <laughs> in the world. Why are you, you know? But, but they had completely different social mores for the men and the women in the society. Right? That's a really interesting, weird, striking thing. And you can do things like that in your cultures as well. When your characters are moving from city A, which is established to have this set of mores, and you go to city B, and it has a different weird set of mores, where one of them is stricter and the other one is looser, and it's confusing. That's one of the things that makes the cities feel vivid and different. And something as subtle as a clothing cut can be how you communicate that. Yeah, let me, let me build on that in a different sort of society, and I'm, I'm more familiar with some of the North American ones and, and some of the Mediterranean ones. It doesn't just have to be, well, the people at the top of the society wore this rare thing. You can communicate all sorts of differences, not just the male-female difference, most obviously, but what clan. You're from the Raven clan, and so you have a little... Raven um, stylized that's woven into your fabric, and someone else from the Wolf Clan may may have have that. Um, or if you are an unmarried woman, you wear your uh, garment in a certain way, and if you are a married woman, you wear it a different way. And that way, when you you meet strangers, it, it's the equivalent of showing a wedding ring. Um, or it can be done with with the hair. Um, Maybe some sort of hair ornament that you're wearing, or maybe some sort of brooch that is holding your, your garment together. There's, there's all sorts of things that are communicated by that. I mean, I look around this room, and we all have some of our little tribal things that are, are, are um, showing us as, as this group, whether it's our, our T-shirts, our, our badges, um, our headgear... All of that. You left out the ears. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have time for one more question. So somebody who hasn't asked one. Yeah. Um, I had a question, but comment. Um, at one time, and up until very recently, I believe, one of the offenses in the Uniform Code of Military Justice was abuse of a public animal, which may, you know, that was a way that showed a value in that context, you know, the, the, the mules and who are whatever animals were valuable enough that it was a uh, court-martial offense, um, or at least disciplinary, if you abuse them, if you beat them, whatever. So. Well, black beauty. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, everybody on the panel, you have a chance for one last uh, one last parting shot. I will follow up on that with a little bit of military trivia from the Napoleonics very quickly. Um, English troopers who were used to, uh, who were recruited largely from um, farming families or used to handling horses and were generally better at treating them. The French troopers who were coming from, they were uh, basically a national draft tended to treat their horses much less well out of pure ignorance and the number of horses lost to new troopers was appalling 
so here you have different words, different worlds. My only thought was to have fun with it because it's a really entertaining way to approach a writing project is to think about the highly complex fabric of a culture, of a society, and all the pieces that you can tease out and use as illumination of character and plot. It's not only fun, but it changes, and it's constantly changing. And don't look at it as aesthetic. And none of these um, stayed the same for, for decades, let, let alone for hundreds or, or thousands of years. Um, I guess just another nonfiction book recommendation. Um, there's a great new collection that's come out in the Other Voices series from, is it Hopkins? Anyway, um, called A Corresponding Renaissance. It's a collection of letters of 52 different Renaissance women. Uh, it's a great sample of how very different their lives are. Because when we talk about the women are spinning the cloth, well, some of the women are spinning cloth, some of the women are running banking businesses, some of the women are being spiritual leaders, some of the women are being nuns who are still running banking businesses. And it gives you a much broader range of sense of what kinds of things a pre-modern woman is likely to be up to, and how you know being a nun it doesn't mean you're locked in a box. There are actually like 50 different types of being a nun that you might have different activities going on. Uh, so it's a really great collection. And it also has women talking about sex and complaining about their boyfriends and complaining about their husbands and all these things that we pretend they never talked about, but they did. Uh, thank you very much. Um, thank you very much. You've been a very good panel. Panelists, you were wonderful. Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can check out our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Melting Podcast. Or you can email us themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it as long as you don't change it don't sell it, and always link back to the website. Sound effects are by the Free Sound Project. And our theme is by Drew Rich Creek. Send us stuff! <laughs>